0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au Today, as I threatened last week or the week before, or both probably, we're going to be looking at the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, uh, inspired by the wedding in Cana that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 2 so let's just open with prayer pray Lord that you will open our eyes to the story that you have woven through the Bible from start to finish show us things we haven't seen before that we may see Jesus more clearly and treasure him more dearly Amen so a couple of weeks ago we started in John chapter 2 after a fairly extended period in John chapter 1 John chapter 2 starts with the wedding at Cana, which is the first of Jesus' miracles, John says. And uh, there's a lot of symbolism that I think I hinted on a couple of weeks back in weddings and wedding celebrations. And uh, much, of this, not much of this symbolism is, uh, is really significant biblically, but not reflected in modern weddings and wedding receptions. Last week, John led us in communion and uh, the lord 's Supper, and we also also shared lunch afterwards and both of those uh, meals are symbolic of a greater feast to come and incidentally didn 't Sarah do a fantastic job last week as she preached. Um, I had someone apologize to me during the week because they got more out of her message than they ever get out of mine. So. <laughs> So it's not the first time I've been told that someone's done a better job preaching than I have and I'm sure it won't be the last. But it it, it truly does actually excite me that God can speak through any one of us and, uh, and speak life-changing words through any one of us. It doesn't have to be just the one person leading the church. It can be anyone and it can be each of you whether you're up the front or not. The words you share with other people can be life-changing. So I'd encourage you... Uh, Don't hold back. If you feel like God has put something on your heart to share with them, let it go. Let it um, fire it off at them. So anyway, each one of these meals that we've had or we've talked about over the last few weeks uh, are a sampling, just a small sampling, of a much greater feast to come. Each one of them points to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, every time you sit down to have breakfast, lunch, dinner, any snack in between, you may not realise it, but what you're doing is pointing to the marriage supper of the lamb at the end of time. Everyone likes a wedding, except possibly the ones that have to plan it out and are stressed out by it, but everyone likes going to weddings. They like the free feed and they like seeing the bride dressed up beautifully. Um, Weddings have become quite extravagant affairs in the 21st century. There's there's some that, uh, some like to do it nice and simply. They sneak off to the the registry office and they get a a ceremony performed by a celebrant there and sign the forms and sneak out. But most people like to celebrate it with others and invite friends and family. On some do destination weddings where they fly to Bali or Fiji and everyone's got to fly there as well to be part of it. Um, others like to spend the equivalent of a good house deposit on an afternoon wedding ceremony Um, but everyone likes a good wedding they like to be invited to a wedding I've had a bit of experience in weddings I've been to plenty of them over the years we've actually got one to go to next Sunday afternoon Uh, um, young Jason Edwards is many of you know well, is getting married and uh, we've had the privilege of being invited to that. I've married off three kids of my own, which were wonderful celebrations and a bit heartbreaking letting go of them, but still a beautiful thing to see them um, meet a a husband or a wife and um, join together with them uh, in marriage where they commit to each other faithfully. I've been married twice myself. And uh, the first one was a very stressful event. It was one of those over-the-top weddings, top hat and tails and a horse-drawn carriage, 42 degrees I think it was that particular day. And the chapel didn't have air conditioning and and the bride was very late because the poor old horses had to stop every 10 minutes or something for a rest and a drink. It, uh, It was a stressful event. I had a big reception full of people that I barely knew, plenty that I didn't know at all. And uh, I wouldn't want to say it was an unpleasant day, but it was a lot tougher than it could have been and needed to be. The second one I had was much more relaxed. That was to Mel, which uh, we catered ourselves. We got married in the church, but uh, it was a fairly relaxed wedding ceremony. Then we catered it ourselves in the backyard of our house or... It was Mel's house up until that day. Then it became ours. (laughs) Although it's still on the title as hers. But um, we had a tent set up in the backyard that was our our bar with a keg and various drinks there. We had lamb on the spit and um, our wedding cake was a black forest cake that her sisters, one of her sisters had made, I think it was. And it was a really enjoyable time, really relaxed, a lot of fun with a lot of people that we, were, we cared deeply about. And, um, and that wedding has been lasting for 30 years so far, and uh, I trust will last until death. Today, though, we're going to trace the history of weddings and wedding feasts through the Bible from the start right through to the finish. Because each one of these stories we see in the Bible teaches us something more about the marriage supper of the Lamb. It'll be fairly heavy on Scripture, and I make no apology for that, but I just warn, uh, say that to warn you to strap in. And uh, it'll be reasonably light on my commentary. Um, when you dig into Scripture, you don't need to comment on it too much, because Scripture illustrates Scripture. And it's the best way to understand what the Bible's saying about something uh, to get the big picture of what the Bible's saying by looking at what other Scriptures say about it. Those who know their Bibles well should have lights going off in their head. As we go through this, because you'll be seeing connections from the very first pages of Scripture uh, with the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is in some of the final pages of Scripture. Those who are less familiar will, I hope, begin to get a better understanding that the Bible tells a unified story from start to finish. It's not a collection of isolated incidents and stories and things that are unrelated to each other, but it is a, a unified story right from the beginning of God's plan for salvation. Even the strange bits, the parts that are hard to understand, the bits that we don't actually like to read or hear about, are all parts of the big picture, all pieces of the puzzle. So the Bible's full of symbolism and types, everyday events and ordinary people that are symbolic of greater spiritual realities. And it describes these events and these people, warts and all. It doesn't try to cover up their faults or it doesn't try to cover up the, uh, the evil that they may have done. But it always uses those events and those people to point to, as I say, a greater spiritual reality, to point to something future, something better to, to come. Those who don't get that misunderstand and misinterpret the bible they interpret the individual parts of the jigsaw puzzle as if they were the whole puzzle sometimes those small puzzle parts illustrate something greater by their similarities to what is greater sometimes they illustrate it in contrast to what is greater so sometimes it'll be a good thing that you see in that person that illustrates that greater spiritual reality sometimes we'll see a bad thing that the Bible presents as a contrast that it's not like this, or it shouldn't be like this. But they're all pieces of the puzzle. They're not the whole puzzle itself. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 to begin with. And in verse 24, the first wedding, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. The original couple, Adam and Eve, became one flesh. The marriage act somehow mysteriously joins two people together in a unity, in a union. It doesn't wipe out the distinctives, the differences between the two, but it joins them together to create, if you like, a third person in a sense. Ultimately, this simple but mysterious union points towards a greater union, that of believers, of every Christian with Christ. Notice also that even though they were naked, they were not ashamed. There was a time once when man and woman lived in a state of such innocence and purity, without guile, that to be naked was not embarrassing. But then Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, as you all know, plunging themselves and all their descendants, which is you and I, into a state of alienation from each other and from God. The Bible tells us the story of how God is restoring people back to himself, restoring people back to that state of purity, back to that state of the Garden of Eden. If you feel shame for anything that you've done, or anything you've experienced this morning, I've got good news for you today. God can and will deal with that shame, if you'll let Him. We'll get to that. I'll give you an opportunity to respond to that a bit later on. But if we skip forward two thousand years, we'll see Abraham finding a bride for his wife, uh, for his son. Sorry, Isaac. It's a pretty long passage. It's 67 verses, so we won't read through it. But I'll just uh, I'll summarise the important parts of the story. There's a lot of customs and strange things that, uh, that sound odd to us, to our modern ear, but it teaches a lot about ancient and biblical patterns of marriage. It's, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 24, the whole chapter. Abraham was an old man at this time, and uh, he wanted to find a wife for his son Isaac. And so he sent his servant, who's, uh, I don't think his name from memory, he sent his servant out to uh, find a bride for his son Isaac, and he sent his servant to a faraway land, but to his own people, so his extended family, Abraham's extended family. And he made the servant swear that he would not find a bride for Isaac from amongst the local people, the Canaanites, who were a hated enemy but to go to the country where Abraham came from originally and find a a bride there for his son from amongst his own people. So the servant loaded up camels and loaded up jewels and uh, rings and gold and silver and, uh, and garments of clothing and took to take with him and went to Mesopotamia, which was where Abraham came from originally. And when he was there, he met a young woman, uh, he went to a well to water his camels and he met a young woman there who offered to water the camels and feed them and offered him a place to stay for that night. The servant concluded that this woman was the bride chosen uh, for Isaac. So he spent the night with the, with her and the family and offered her rings and jewels and garments and gave uh, the same jewels and things like that to her family as well and uh, she accepted the offer to become Isaac's bride even though she'd never met him she didn't know him from a bar or so and they packed up the camels and they headed back to Canaan where Abraham and Isaac were living and as she approached um, Canaan she saw a man in the field coming towards them who was Isaac and she asked the servant who's that man that's That is Isaac, and so she put a veil over her face. And she wore that veil until her wedding night. So these are all little things that become important as we go through. Ancient marriages, you might notice, were not about nightclubs and Tinder and Bachelor wants a wife. Rarely in scripture, it's not completely unknown, but rarely in scripture do you find a young man finding a woman and falling in love with her and marrying her. In most cases, in a lot of cultures today, marriages are arranged by the father with someone from the extended family. So that's the normal process. The father would choose a young woman for his son to marry, and it still happens, as I say, in some cultures around the world today, but it's almost completely unknown in Western society. So these customs are really strange to our ears. I've known a couple of people that are in arranged marriages, and to my knowledge they've been quite successful. Um, In at least one instance, the husband and the, the wife hadn't met before that day. So anyway, the father would find a bride for his son. He'd make arrangements for them to be married, and in this instance in Genesis 24, Abraham sent the servant to choose the bride. Does that make you think of any parallels in New Testament times? the servant searching out the bride. When the bride had been chosen and assuming her and the family agreed, she was betrothed to her future husband. Betrothal is more than just an engagement. It's more than just a ring on the finger that you can throw a tantrum and say, no, I want to break this engagement and walk away. Betrothal was a legally binding obligation to marry that person. And you actually had to get a divorce to get out of a betrothal. You weren't married yet and the betrothal would happen a year or more in advance of the actual wedding day. When the wedding day finally arrived, the bride would wear a veil so that the husband couldn't see her face until they went into the bedroom at the end of the wedding reception. There are a number of things that sort of stand out in the symbolism of uh, these ancient customs and in the Bible. And all of them are important for us to properly understand the Marriage Supper of the Lamb that comes later on. But a warning before we get too far into this. If you want to apply your 21st century moral standards and expectations, you're going to miss the point. Regardless of how loud the alarm bells are ringing in your outrage meter about sexism and, and um, exploitation, this was a patriarchal culture as all of them were. They were ruled by the men. All of the cultures in that day were like that. The men were in charge and in a lot of those cultures the women were nothing more than property of no more value than the sheep or the cattle. It is, but we're talking thousands of years ago. So if you try to apply your current moral standards to that you'll miss the point. You won't understand what the Bible is telling us about these things. So Abraham... Represents God the Father, who sent his servant, representing the Holy Spirit, to find a bride for his son, Isaac, who represents Jesus Christ. The servant travelled to a foreign land to find the bride. Rebecca, the bride that the servant found, is symbolic of the church. All believers from all nations and all languages and all cultures through all of history are the bride that is chosen for the son. The bride had to come from Abraham's own extended family, not from the strangers and enemies around him. In a similar way, the church is chosen from those God already knows, those he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, as the scripture puts it. Your theological outlook will determine just how much importance you place on that point. There was no relationship between Isaac and Rebecca, until the servants sought her out and introduced them. Similarly, there's no relationship between Jesus Christ and any one of us until the Holy Spirit finds us and introduces us to him. The servant spent time with Rebecca's family before taking her to meet the husband she was now betrothed to. The Holy Spirit, you will recall, dwells with us and in us until he finally presents us to Jesus Christ, the groom, when we'll meet him face to face in eternity. Jewelry and rings and gifts and clothing were given to Rebecca as a sign, a seal of her new status as betrothed to her husband. We believers have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. A price was paid to purchase Rebecca from her family, and a price was paid the precious blood of Christ, to purchase each and every one of you that have met him, the groom. Rebecca wore a veil from the time she saw her new husband in the distance until her wedding night. And when we turn to the Lord, it says in the Bible, the veil is removed and we will with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. The story is replete with typology, with symbolism. Pictures taken from everyday life that represent greater spiritual realities. The Old Testament is chock-a-block full of this sort of stuff. And we could find a lot more if we chose to dig into it further. Then we get to Genesis 29. So we're still in Genesis at this stage. But interesting how Genesis lays a foundation for so much of the rest of The Bible. Every major doctrine and teaching of the Bible finds its roots in the book of Genesis. So in Genesis 29, we see the first wedding feast. Again, I'll just summarise this because it's a fairly extensive passage, but Jacob, our old friend, the heel grasper, the deceiver we talked about recently, wanted to marry Rachel. So he worked for Laban for seven years in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. When the seven years were up he told Laban the time's come I want to be with my wife so Laban organised a feast which lasted for seven days. But Laban pulled the wool over Jacob's eyes and put the older sister Leah into the marriage bed that night. Jacob of course didn't realise because the bride had been wearing a veil all night long and uh, he didn't know it was the wrong wife until next morning when the sun came up. Jacob then worked another seven years to finally get the one he really wanted, Rachel. Poor Leah, the unwanted and the unloved bride. But God was gracious to Leah. God gave her the first four of Jacob's sons. In that culture, having sons especially, children, but sons especially, was a mark of great honor. And you read through the Bible, women that were barren were ashamed of being barren. So Leah gave Jacob his first four sons, including Judah, after whom the Jews are named to this very day. The next wedding, moving on a little bit, that reveals a little bit more of the puzzle, is that of Samson. Samson was one of those strong-headed people that likes to do things his own way. To heck with what anyone else thinks. This is what I want, this is what I'm going to do. Which, of course, gets him in trouble. In Judges 14 we read that Samson saw a Philistine woman, one of the hated enemy, and his hormones ruled his head. He wanted her, even though his parents objected, for she is right in my eyes, Samson said. Again there was another seven day feast, but in this story, Judges 14, we read for the first time about the groom providing clothes for the guest. The groom was responsible to provide special wedding clothes for the guests at his own expense. The guests couldn't just turn up at the wedding reception dressed in whatever they wanted to, any old clothes, even if they were tailored made Armani suits. They had to arrive in the, the clothes that the groom had provided for them. Those wedding clothes, the special wedding clothes provided for them, were the evidence that they were guests and not gatecrashers. Now this should make you think of a passage in Matthew 22. We can have that on the screen please, Paul. But Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see I have, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main road, Main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came back to look at the guests, he saw a man there who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot. And cast him into the outer darkness In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth For many are called but few are chosen Serious stuff But it's also extremely important When it comes to wedding feasts in the kingdom of God There are two types of people There are those who are invited to celebrate And given the special garments to wear And there are those who are kicked out And notice he wasn't just kicked out of the party, he was bound hand and foot and thrown out into a place of rejection, abandonment and suffering. If your image of Jesus is the common gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who wouldn't hurt a fly, who loves everyone and wouldn't reject anyone, you need to read a little bit more of what Jesus actually said. For no one talked about hell more than Jesus did. And no one claimed to be the judge who determined the eternal fate and state of anyone like Jesus did. That's the bad news. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your final destination, I can assure you, is somewhere you don't want to go. Because there's no escape. It doesn't matter if you think I'm going to go there and party with my friends. There will be no party in that place. It will be alienation and rejection and torment. The good news is, you don't have to go there. Just as Jesus talked about a king sending out invites to everyone to attend the feast, so he sends an invite to you today. Come to the feast. Come to Christ. Come and the king himself will provide you with the clothing necessary for the wedding feast. He will provide you with clothing that is the righteousness of Christ. Let me tell you a little bit more about wedding celebrations. There's so many Bible passages on this that we could be here all day. But there are some more things you need to know. On the day of the wedding, the groom would go with his friends to the bride's house. From there, he would lead her and her friends in joyous procession back to his place for the feast. It was a celebration all the way back. The young married couple would be dressed in fine clothes for the event. In fact, they would be dressed like royalty. They'd be dressed like kings and queens. The bridal gown itself was adorned with fine jewels. And the groom wore a diadem, which is a type of crown that the kings wear on his head. Isaiah 61 tells us, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He has clothed me. Let's go back to John chapter 2, the passage that inspired all these The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The groom was responsible for providing sufficient food and drink for the feast as well, not just the clothing. And it was more than just an expectation that he would provide, he had a legal obligation to provide it. If anything ran short before the feast was over, he could be sued for the shortfall. And He not only faced financial penalty for the shortage, he and his whole family faced humiliation and social rejection. The social standing of the, fam- of the whole family would be damaged in the community possibly for generations to come. Hence Mary is concerned that the wine had run out at the wedding at Cana. But Jesus of course saves the day. He turns the water into the wine and not just into ordinary wine. He takes the dirty washing up water that the Pharisees had used for their ritual purification, washing their hands. And he turns it into the best wine. Jesus likes to save the best until last. Have you noticed that? The best is still yet to come. For those who have put our faith in him. There's a great feast coming. One like you've never experienced before. Have you ever noticed that unlike us, God doesn't seem to be in a hurry? The way God likes to operate, as I said a few weeks ago is he will spend thousands of years dropping little hints and little pictures and another chapter of the Bible or another book of the Bible or something over a course of 1,500 years it took for the Bible to be written. Each one of them, though, reveals a little bit more of what he's doing. A little bit more of the picture puzzle is in, in place with every passing generation, with every century that goes by. If he chose to, God could have just delivered a completed book onto us just in one hit and a detailed document that laid out step-by-step step what he was doing all the way through and why he was doing it, a manual that gives us a big picture all in one reading. But he didn't do it that way, have you noticed that? He did it progressively, a little at a time, over thousands of years, and even when you read through it, There's little hints here that tie up with another little hint there that ties up with an event there that gives you a better understanding of the picture. He has very good reasons for doing it that way, which I might touch on Monday. But uh, in the meantime, all of these hints and symbols and types, thousands of years worth, were designed to set the stage for the great marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a wedding feast coming one day. That all of these other feasts, all of these other meals point to in types and shadows. It will be at the end of days when the groom, Jesus Christ, meets his bride. And the bride is the church, as I said before, every believer through every generation. And the groom will meet his bride face to face without the veil in the way. Revelation 19 We read about the great marriage supper of the Lamb, a time of unparalleled joy and feasting. Then I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for our Lord, our God, Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is a great marriage supper. The great celebration at the end of time. When will it happen? It may be 10,000 years into the future. It may be 10 minutes in the future. No one knows. But the question you need to ask yourself is, have I made myself ready? When that marriage supper comes, will I be invited or will I be cast out? Are you prepared for his return to collect his bride for the party to end all parties? So how do we make ourselves ready? The first step, of course, is to accept the offer from the bridegroom. If you haven't done that yet, I'm going to give you an opportunity shortly. Although you don't need to wait for me, you can do it right now in your seat. You can say, I want to be invited to this party, to this wedding celebration, Lord just to avoid any confusion, when the Bible invites you to attend this feast as a guest, it's also inviting you to attend it as the bride. What about those of us who have already accepted the invitation? Do we need to do anything more to make ourselves ready? Maybe you're worried, you're a believer, but you're worried that you won't be ready when the time comes because you haven't found God's will for your life. You've been praying and waiting on God and and finding special scriptures and listening to people, trying to find out what God's will is for your life. Maybe you've been paralysed by fear because you're worried about making the wrong choice. If you stress about finding God's will for your life, you don't need to. So many people worry that they will miss it. They get, and they're worried they'll get to the end of their life with regrets and doubts. There's no need though to chase after prophetic words at conferences and important speakers or to go to this meeting or that event to try and find out what God's will is for your life. It's actually really quite simple. Sometimes though knowing What to do is a lot easier than actually doing it. But finding God's will for your life is really quite simple. It's three simple steps. And Micah 6.8 tells us what those steps are. The Lord has shown you what is good. He has told you what he requires of you to see that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and walk humbly with your God. Three simple steps. Commit yourself to following Christ and living out the three simple steps of Micah 6.8. See that justice is done. Do you see someone treated unfairly? Defend them. Do you know of someone being unfairly blamed? Stand up for them. Set the record straight. Do you see someone being attacked? Protect them. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern. Do you see someone suffering? Comfort them. Do you see someone hungry? Feed them. Do you see someone lost or lonely? Befriend them. Direct them. Let mercy be your first concern. And walk humbly with your God. Acknowledge you have nothing to offer in yourself except sin and rebellion. Whatever little good you may be able to do in this life, give God the glory for it. For you can do nothing of yourself, it says in Scripture. Commit yourself to following and serving Him wherever that may lead you. And walk in obedient relationship to what you do know And he will lead you into what you don't know. There's enough in scripture that tells us things that we can understand. Do them. And God will lead you into the things you can't understand. The whole of Micah 6.8 See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern. And walk humbly with your God as summarized in the great command. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul and your strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his ways, it says in Psalms, I think it is. Follow in those steps, do those things you know, and God will work out his will for your life on your behalf. Revelation 19.8 tells us it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what are these clothes that the bride wears? Ephesians 2, you might recall, 8 and 9. For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God himself has prepared the good works, the righteous deeds that become the bride's clothing. All you need to do is walk in obedience and do whatever good thing you get opportunity to do and to worship God. And hey, presto, you are walking Straight into those good works, those righteous deeds. So there's a promise of a great feast for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. There is also a warning, eternal destruction. Destruction awaits his enemies when he gets his final victory over them. Revelation 19 again, verses 11 to 16 tells us, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. tell you it is dangerous to play games with this groom, to reject his offer, to snub the invitation to the marriage supper. You don't want to play those games with this groom because as loving as he is, he will also be merciless to those who reject him. There will be no escape for those who turn their back on him. Don't be, I plead, one of his enemies for make no mistake about his enemies will be destroyed you can decide today right here right now where you sit whether you'll accept the invitation to that feast or whether you'll reject it and face the king's fury on that last day in a moment I'll give you a very specific opportunity to accept that invitation whether your invitation your motivation for accepting that invitation is to enjoy the feast or to escape his wrath. I really don't care. What matters is that you accept. If you're a believer today, guess who chose you to be married to his son? The father himself. And a great feast awaits you. If you've not yet put your faith in him, I call on you to accept the offer and turn to him in faith and repentance right now. Can so I ask everyone to close their eyes please? Well, everyone's got their eyes closed. If you feel God is calling you to accept his invitation to this wedding feast, if you feel any sort of stirring going in on inside you, And even if you don't sense that, you've heard that you must accept this invitation. While everyone's eyes are closed, can I just ask you to give me a small wave? Lift your hand and give me a wave. Anyone that wants to accept that invitation? Thank you. While everyone's eyes are closed, I'll lead a short prayer. I invite you, even if you haven't given me a wave, to pray this prayer. Those who are believers already, you might be able to pray it as a reaffirmation of your trust in Christ. But those who haven't prayed it yet, you can pray this as well as your plea to get an invite to this wedding feast. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that my life has been one of rebellion against you, of ignoring you and rejecting your invitation. But today, Jesus, I accept your invitation. I accept the clothes that you offer to me to be part of this wedding feast, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I accept that, Lord, and I put my trust in you today. I will choose, Lord, to follow you from this day on. And I look forward to that great feast one day when I can see you face to face without shame, without fear, without terror. Because, Jesus, you shed your blood for me, for me to be able to wear those clothes of righteousness to the wedding feast. Thank you, Lord. Would you change my heart today to be a heart that follows after you and loves you. And thank you, Lord, that we've got a celebration to look forward to. Thank you that this life, as good or as bad as it may be, is not the end of the story for us. Lord, we look forward to that feast at the end of time When we will be eternally in your presence, no more fear, no more pain, no more loneliness, no more rejection, every tear wiped away and death finally defeated. We pray this to your glory and in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.